It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. We uh, are members at uh, Redeemer Church in uh, Cedar Woolley. Uh, Dwayne and Debbie attend there as well, and so Dwayne asked me to give you his uh, greetings from Cedar Woolley, and uh, from everyone in our fellowship, we, uh, we greet you all, and we get to greet you in person. So, uh, again, it is a, a, a joy to be with you all this morning. We will be in uh, Psalm 51 this morning. I had the privilege, our, one of our elders, our teaching elder, is on vacation for a few weeks, and um, myself and another elder candidate had the opportunity to preach last week in this, and then uh, another brother in our fellowship will be preaching next week, and uh, this is the passage that we are going through, Psalm 51, and uh, it is a difficult passage. And I had shared with our congregation, it's difficult in the best of ways, but it is a very um, difficult passage for the Christian to deal with. If you'd pray with me before we get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word, which is truth. Lord God, we thank you that you are merciful, that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, we are sinful people. Lord, and in this life, we come often before the throne to receive mercy. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us from your word this morning. And Lord, that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. Psalm 51 has a history, has a backstory, a historical setting. That historical setting is found in 2 Samuel. Before we get there, I'd like to read through uh, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. That will be our primary text this morning. And so beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 51, this is the word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is the word of God a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Before we venture into these four verses here in Psalm 51, it's essential that we understand what's happening, what prompts this from David to write this this cry for mercy, this cry of repentance. If you would turn with me to 2 Samuel beginning in chapter 11, and I'm just going to read 2 Samuel 11 through 12, 15, because God's Word very clearly lays out the the backstory. You don't need my commentary. Um, 
So we'll begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. and She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, But he did not go down to his own house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned to Uriah the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot him from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. And some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. 
For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. That's the history of Psalm 51. David was king in Israel. God had put him there. Our family is going through 1 Samuel in our devotions at night, and it's amazing to see God's providence in bringing David to king, to be king, what David would have observed in Saul's life. And we, we read the stories about David's unwavering faithfulness to God and his trusting God to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And time goes on, and David's comfortable, and David sins a grievous sin before God. In contemplating this psalm when we came to it, of course there's a historical setting which we have just read, and the reality of David's plea 
in repentance to God. And there's much application for us because we are like David. If you'd turn really quick with me, uh, we won't turn to all the passages, but I, I do uh, have quite a few to, to go through today. In Deuteronomy uh, 17, Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 18, we have the laws concerning Israel's kings. This is given to Moses to give to the people of Israel at a time when there was no king. God, foreseeing the rebellion of the people, would give this command in the giving of his law. And so in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 18, we read this, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. David would know this passage. David would have read, memorized, and written a copy of it in a book. Doubtless Samuel would have verified this writing of the law. David knows that what he has done is sin. When we come to Psalm 51, we're dealing with David in the second half of 2 Samuel 12. Beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David is aware of God's law. He's aware of the punishment for sin. But it's not all that David is aware of concerning the Lord. In Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6, Exodus 34, verse 6, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. When David cries out in repentance in Psalm 51, he has knowledge of God's law, the penalty for sin, but that's not all he knows of God. He knows from Exodus, he knows that God is merciful. And it's upon that knowledge that David cries out for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast kindness. Your steadfast love, your abundant mercy. There are examples of this for David. 
In Genesis 19.16 we read, But he, Lot, lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. David would know this. David would know this story of God's mercy in Abram's plea to God to spare Lot. In Deuteronomy 4.31, we read, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. These are the examples that embolden David to come before God in repentance and plead for mercy. David's guilty. David knows he's guilty. We have likewise examples in God's word of his mercy. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, we read the words of Jonah. O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We have this. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, we read, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Christians, we should likewise be emboldened to come before God in repentance. Repentance is a foundational aspect of sanctification in the life of the Christian Sin, unfortunately, is a part of us in this life. But we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And a part of that sanctification is faithfulness in repentance. David is aware of God's mercy. He's aware of God's steadfast love. And it's upon that knowledge that he has come to plead for mercy and repentance. We, too, have examples of God's mercy and must come upon that ground alone. In verse 2, we read, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. As I was preparing and studying this was curious to me. David's chief sins in this instance in Second Samuel are, of course, murder, adultery, covetousness, lying. And within the Levitical law, there were certainly prescribed sacrifices for sin. And along with that, very often ceremonial washing, um, Priests in Exodus thirty seventeen through 21, we read that priests were to, to wash and cleanse before ministering in the tabernacle or temple. You had the ritual washings spoken of in Leviticus, 
uh, 13, chapters 13 through 16, and, and a man who cured or a person cured of leprosy and other instances in which um, cleansing would happen, and it was in accordance with God's law. The people were to wash before they came before the Lord at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. But David's sins have no allowance. There is not a sacrifice in the law to keep David alive. In Exodus 21, 14, the penalty for murder is death. And in Leviticus 20, 10, the penalty for adultery is death. David knows this. I believe that the, the cleansing that David is pleading for and the washing, though not divorced from that concept, are much deeper. They're felt truly in David, the uncleanness and the filthiness that accompanies sin in the life of the Christian. And to be sure, when we are the children of God, when we know God and we fall in sin, if that's happened to you, you know this feeling. It's a feeling of being dirty. And it's deep. It's far deeper than superficial dirt on the exterior. David is crying out for a thorough washing of his heart, his conscience. In Matthew 15, we read this. Beginning in verse 17, do you still not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. David is feeling the filthiness of his sin as he cries out in repentance for a cleansing, a cleaning that is so deep. Only God can provide the cleaning and the cleansing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, the Apostle Paul writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. When we've come to Christ, we've been washed. It's not external washing. It is a true washing that only God can do. It's a washing of the heart. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, we read this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and without blemish. Christ cleanses His church, His bride. He washes her clean. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, we read this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Christians, the, the washing from iniquity, the cleansing from sin, that is something that God does. And He does so because He is merciful. He is steadfast in love. And we need to be washed. In this life, I need to be washed often. In verse 3, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I was reading a commentary from Matthew Henry on this passage, and I'd like to read to you what he shares is particularly convicting to me and encouraging at the same time. Commenting on this passage, he says, David never walked on the roof of his house without a penitent reflection on his unhappy walk there when thence he saw Bathsheba. He never lay down to sleep without a sorrowful thought of the bed of his uncleanness. He never sat down to eat, never sent his servant on an errand, or took his pen in his hand, but it put him in mind of his making Uriah drunk, the treacherous message he sent by him, and the fatal warrant he wrote and signed for his execution. I agree. I believe that David would remember this encounter, as we often do. God is faithful. He doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't hold them to our charge. But we remember. David's aware of his transgressions. He says that it's ever before him. There's an aspect of repentance when we come before God because of sin that we must mimic this pattern. We must take ownership of our sin. We must say, I know my transgressions, for they are before me. We are to come in humility before God. In James 4.10, we read, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. In Proverbs 22.4, we read, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. In Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. In 1 John 1.9 we read, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
We must come in humility. We must take ownership of our sin. We have examples in the scripture of the opposite. As I shared, we are going through 1 Samuel. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 18. We read this, and this is Samuel speaking to Saul. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul doesn't take responsibility for his sin. Saul, as king, was commanded. And he did not obey the voice of the Lord. And instead of owning his sin, Saul lays it at the feet of the people. In Genesis chapter 3, we're all familiar with this passage. Genesis chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, we read, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Isn't that the way? <laughs> I have kids. If you've had kids, if you have kids now, if you ever were a kid, you can sympathize with this. They don't take ownership for anything wrong, right? There's that fear of getting caught. We have examples in the scripture of people not taking responsibility for their sin. But we don't have to think of our kids. We don't have to think back to when we were kids. The temptation when we sin is to lay our sin at someone else's door. Is it not this way? Is that not where we go? Well, God, if you had just provided a little more, I wouldn't have had to steal. Shame on us. David takes ownership of his sin in this instance and says, I know my transgressions and they're ever before me. We come to verse 4 in our passage. We read, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. If you'd turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, I was so blessed to see that this morning in the handout, and we will read it again. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and you do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or anything of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land of the Lord your God that he has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkeys, or anything that is your neighbor's. David speaks of the righteousness of God's judgments. It is against God, it's God's law that David has broken. David knows that certainly Others have been affected. Others have been drawn into his sin. But ultimately, it is God's law that's been broken. In Psalm 711, we read, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. In Isaiah 33, verse 22, we read, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And in Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, we read, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. People complain about the judgments of God. People say things like, if God were truly loving, bad things wouldn't happen. If God were truly just, good people wouldn't die young. David is not making these cries. David knows that he's guilty. In Ezekiel 18, verse 20, we read, The soul who sins shall die. In Romans 3, 10 through 11, we read, as it is written, none is righteous. No one, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. In Genesis 8, 21, we read, and when the Lord smelled the aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of his heart is only evil from his youth. David knows this. David feels the burden of his sin. And the weight of it. 
And David acknowledges that God's judgments against him are good and right because he's guilty. In the same time as he's pleading for God's mercy, he acknowledges you aren't required to be merciful to me. I want to read one last passage this morning and we'll close with some questions. If you turn to Romans chapter 7, In this particular passage, Paul is dealing with the law and what the law does. In verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Christians, there is ever before us, the opportunity to sin. When I was younger, it took different forms. But they've not gone away. In fact, my sinful nature has found new ways to sin as I get older. The first question I asked myself when coming to this text was, do I look at my sin and recoil against my sin the way I recoil against David's when I read 2 Samuel. When we read 2 Samuel, when we read about the righteous character of Uriah and the way that David murders him and connives and sneaks and plans with full knowledge that what he's doing is wrong, and we're repulsed by that, But do I look at my sin the same way I look at David's when I read 2 Samuel? If I'm honest, no. I need to be honest about my sin. I need to look at the sin in my life the same way that I look at David's. The second question is, do I take ownership of my sin? There are certainly circumstances in our life that come along and can cause us to fall into sin, but ultimately we are responsible for how we live before God. I need to look at gossip for the way the Bible says what gossip is, or slander the way that God views slander. 
and I need to take ownership of my sin. And the third question is, when I sin, do I flee to the mercy of God? Christian, there is nothing more important this morning, I think, that we can be left with from this text than the confidence that is displayed by David in this psalm. And I would encourage you this week, even this Lord's Day, read through the whole psalm. Read through Psalm 51. David flees to the steadfast mercy of God. Do that. When you're caught in sin, when the Spirit of God speaks into your heart and tells you, you are the man. Flee to Christ. In Psalm, this very Psalm, 51, David cries out in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The passage we'll close in this morning is one of my favorite passages. And I would encourage you, if you don't have it committed to memory, maybe take a little time this Lord's Day and do so. We sang, there's a hymn we sang this morning off of this particular verse in Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 and I really would encourage you that this passage come to mind when you flee to Christ in repentance that repentance be an active part of your sanctification in this Christian life and please Christian don't put it off again when when the Lord prompts you for those things that you have sought to hide. Come to Christ, flee to Christ. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, we read, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord God, as we have heard from your word, as we have read from David's example, Lord, his cry to you, Lord, let it be our cry. Lord, that you would wash us free from our sin. Lord, that as we dwell in this life, looking, Lord, for your return, looking for that time, Lord, when righteousness dwells, and rules. Lord, in this sinful life, that you would hear our plea, be merciful to us according to your steadfast love. Lord, I ask that you would, Lord, remember us, your people, as you do in your faithfulness. We love you. We pray, Lord, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. In your name, amen.